being an arranger and then being black and being whatever, that was a triple deficit. Well, Harold, the first thing I'd really like you to do for us, because you're you're one of the few guys that can do it for us, is to take us back to New Orleans in the 50s and really set the scene of what it was like musically there. Actually, I started out in the late 40s when I got out of high school going into college. It was when I discovered that I could write uh, uh, because I was in high school and I... Uh, I wasn't a very good clarinet player, so I thought I'd try to write something to impress my band leader uh, and the girls, too. Of course. So I, I transcribed a, an old Eddie Cleaney Vincent record uh, mm-hmm. and uh, brought, the, brought the parts to school, and uh, the band leader, Mr. Davis, said, Oh, boy, you, you, you could write. You could be an arranger. At the time, I didn't know what an arranger was. And that's what, you know, when I heard the guys played what I wrote, it sounded just like the record. So I said, yeah, I can do that pretty good. <laughs> so and how did you go from there to actual professional work? Well, I sort of, I guess, slipped into it through the back door. And like I guess a lot of arrangers guys did in those days, because I didn't intend to be an arranger. It's just that since I could do it, all the guys would always, you know, when they needed something, they would say, oh, we'll get Harold. Harold can do it. And I used to just do it, not for money. I just did it because I could do it. And pretty soon somebody would say, well, you know, there was a show coming in town, somebody, and they needed a backup band, and they needed somebody to play all these guys' music. So they'd pay me a little bit to, to write parts for the backup bands. Mm-hmm. And that's how I sort of slipped into it to becoming professional. Although I didn't, I still didn't think of myself as an arranger. I just was a cat who could write music. Did you find that most musicians don't have the patience for it, and you maybe had the mental skills to uh, be able to sit down and actually do it? Yeah. So it came to you. I enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed writing. I, you know, to me, it was this, uh, it was like. When I would finish, if I, particularly if I wrote it on a score page, when I would finish writing all those notes and I'd look back at it, it looked like art to me. <laughs> and I, was, I, I never thought I'd get something played or something like that. It was, just, it was satisfactory to see what I had done. I felt like I was a, a draftsman, for, for, you know, like doing blueprints or something. Who were some of the other guys that that you were working with uh, at that time? Uh, the most were local people. I don't know who who anybody else would recognize. The only ones that got po- popular were I, in the late must have been was that the late fifties something like that. Joe Jones, hey, we had a hit record. Call you talk too much, but that was after I had already gone to Los Angeles and I had done some work. Uh, with Sam Cooke on his first record mm-hmm. uh, on You Send Me. Uh, I had been asked to go through Sam's uh, music for looking for a B-side for a record. And uh, he he sang me You Send Me and several other little songs that he was going to do for the B-side of this record they were going to produce. 
And when we got to the studio, this was a very simple song, so you didn't really need to write a part song. But the, they had singers in the, in the studio who had been brought there to do Summertime, which was to be the A-side. And they had completed that, and the producer asked me, well, what did you find from the do for the B-side? And we said, okay, this, this is a little song. But they didn't have anything for the singers to do, so I had to write parts for them right out in the, you know, in the studio. After that, you know, uh, I became, the company was very impressed. Not that company, but the company that the record was finally brought to after that company said no that we didn't like that mm-hmm. but then that's that's i guess what really started the becoming a professional arranger so a lot of uh, new orleans musicians seem to have made an exodus to la uh, mm-hmm. apart from yourself i mean what what was the reason for that well a lot of the new orleans community did migrate west like like a lot of Mississippians went to Chicago and a lot of people from the east coast of the south went up to New York. That was just the direction in which the, the migration took. And a lot of New Orleans people went out to L.A. When I got there, there was already a, a New Orleans community there. Mm-hmm. So my going west, although I didn't know it, was just like most New Orleans were doing. You say there were already people from New Orleans there. Did you know them, and had you contacted them? No, said, I I'm coming. No, I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I got there. I went out there following Edward Blackwell, the drummer. Huh. Uh, there was a cat that had come to New Orleans, got stranded in New Orleans, named Arnett Coleman. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with him. He had got stranded in New Orleans a few years earlier, and uh, he got to know some of the people there. And then he went back to Texas, and then I think he went to Los Angeles, and he knew Blackwell. They they had got connected. Then uh, uh, when uh, Edward and uh, Ellis Marcellus, Edward convinced Ellis Marcellus to go out to Los Angeles, and then uh, I had been teaching school for a few years, from which I had resigned, and uh, they asked me would I go since I had quit my job. So... I was just going following Blackwell. Both Ellis and I were just following him. But I had the car, so that's probably why they asked me to go. Mm-hmm. So how did you get involved in your f- first professional work then in L.A.? When we first went out there, you know, I was just going out there to play jazz. We used to jam and got a little gig once a week, about six bucks, something like that. And uh, I had took a job in the post office. But... In the process of, you know, jamming Blackwell and Arnett and all of us, we went into the studio and did a little demo of some of Arnett's material. Uh, They decided that somebody should try to see if we could get a record contract. And they picked me to go around to record record companies and do that. And that's what landed me at... At one record label where somebody remembered me from New Orleans and asked me to come and do some work with them. And is that how you ended up working with Sam Cooke? Yeah. I mean, I got the guy at Specialist Record, Bumps Blackwell. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know. Sure. Bumps Blackwell. When I went by specialty with Arnett's 
our little demo, he he had known of me from New Orleans. He used to come to New Orleans a lot to to do recording, and so he got Art Roop to take me on as a talent scout to go back to New Orleans and you know do some some of that mm-hmm. in exchange for possibly listening to our record, our little jazz record. And so that was my deal. I said, well, if you let us do a little jazz record, I'll go back there. And uh, that's what got me started, and I came back to New Orleans. And Now, in New Orleans, uh, who did you find for them? I didn't find Art Neville. He was already signed with them. I just recorded him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I... Uh, there was a little cat named Jerry Byrne, uh, the white guy singing the blues. I recorded him. That was a sort of a fine. I found him through Mac Rebenick because Rebe- Mac Rebenick started coming by and bringing songs, and I used to sort of just give him my opinion of his songs and try to get some of them recorded. Mm-hmm. There was a group called The Monitors, I remember, when you re- recorded in the studio with these various uh, artists and, and groups, uh, what was your method of working? I mean, did you write out full arrangements, or would you come in with chord charts, or what? How would you work with them? Well, no, I would, uh, I would plan out charts, actually write them out since I could do that. Uh, if there were going to be horn parts and so forth, I would write the whole thing out. Mm-hmm. I used to keep. I may, I may still have some of those old scores. It was not arranging like formal arranging. It was just arranging like the real word, arrange. You know, Mm -hmm. just put stuff together that works, that sounds like, you know, something you like. Hmm. When I was speaking with uh, Jerry Wexler, he spoke, of course, very highly of you and described working with with you and Dr. John. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I know you worked on on most of Mac Rebenack's albums. Uh, what was it like working with him? I, what was your working relationship with him? With Mac? Yeah. Well, uh, Mac, my working with Mac, like a lot of, like the same way with Sonny and them, it was almost like a, I shouldn't, uh, but it was almost like a parental thing. I mean, I felt about Mac, he, like he was a kid when he came to me, mm-hmm. and I had developed a relationship of sort of taking care of him and his his mother and him sort of uh, evidently had some confidence that I would look out for him because the situations in which he got himself into weren't always, uh, you know, <laughs> the safest things to be involved. So my working with Mac was always trying to uh, expose him and make the best of his use of his talents in a sort of uh, kinship way. He's, he's a great piano player, and, and would you uh, get together before you'd record and decide on how you were going to do various songs? He, he, well, before the Dr. John stuff, when we was in New Orleans, I considered him basically a songwriter, and he would bring stuff to me, you know, as songs to be recorded by somebody else. So it wasn't a matter of working them out, you know, for him. It was a matter of whoever, like the Jerry Byrne thing. I, I think that was Max's song that we did, this Lights Out and stuff like that. And then I would try to adapt the song to the singer who was going to do it and work out an arrangement that we thought was uh, 
that would be catchy or suitable for whatever the song was, and the singer. My whole approach always to putting together stuff like that is to not bring my own ego to it, but to bring my my service to it and try to serve the song and the, the singer. When you were actually working on his own material for him, was that uh, somewhat different, and did he have a lot more input? Like, such as... Well, like like his own albums. The uh, Gree Gree album mm-hmm. <laughs> was almost like a joke. <laughs> I mean, that, I you know, I did that because... Uh, just to do something that I wanted to do. I had an agreement with uh, Sonny. We had a little production company, Sonny and I, called Progress Records, which we had agreed to produce some other things. I wanted to do some other things other than Sonny and Cher. You know, I was saying to Sonny, you know, this Sonny and Cher stuff is not going to last. We ought to do some other people. And uh, I had done about two or three acts that Sonny had brought me to do but they were not necessarily what I would have chosen to do. So I just, by that time, Mac was out in Los Angeles, and I had started using him on uh, some Sun and Share dates, and I had put him in the rhythm section when I would go on the road. So in that in that sense, I said, well, hey, man, I mean, I wanted to do something with that Progress Records thing that I wanted to do, and I asked Mac, did he have any ideas? anything he wanted to do. And that's when he he brought me the idea of the voodoo thing, Hmm. which he had been studying. You know, Mac is, I guess, a prolific student of most of the stuff that he does. And, he, you know, so he knew about this cat, Dr. John, you know, the old voodoo man. Hmm. And he wanted to suggest that we do this for another cat named Ronnie Barron. I don't know if you know him. He was uh, he was one of one of Max's little protégés, you know, like Jerry Byrne, uh, from New Orleans. But he was out there, and he was a great singer. I liked the way he sang. He he was much more of a balladeer type singer. That's what Mac wanted uh, Ronnie to be, Doctor John. However, uh, we didn't agree on that because I didn't think Mac Ronnie was Ronnie sang too good for that for for what that was going to be. So Mac was very reluctant about singing because he never thought of himself as a singer. So that album was sort of just crafted to be a voodoo psychedelic kind of thing, you know, sort of a, a sort of spoof on the West Coast. Obsession with underground music and you know all of the stuff that went with being in California mm. it was like I didn't think that it would really be taken that seriously, and I don't think Mac thought so either. But it was like a joke. We're gonna, we said we're going to give him some real Louisiana stuff, and I went out and got all of the people that I could find from New Orleans and who understood what we were doing. And we had a few people from there also. So it was recorded in L.A., but you had a lot of guys, a lot of New Orleans people. Oh, yeah, people. We, had all, we, had, we had Tammy Lynn and Jesse Hill and, oh, man, all of John Boudreaux and Ernest McLean. I mean, every, you know, we had a, a large New Orleans community out there to draw from, uh, capture the, the, the real spirit of what we were doing. 
Well, people certainly loved it. <laughs> they sure did. It surprised me. <laughs> uh, when I was speaking with Jerry Wexley, he told me that um, when when you were working on the Gumbo record, yeah, uh, that at at the beginning of recording, you walked off the project and then came back later uh, to do all the all the overdubs and the horns. Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably was, but I don't remember now. It was uh, they had been they had been a a period of you know like separation. After I did the first couple of albums, you know, Mac, Mac is very, uh, I guess, vulnerable to a lot of different kind of people who would offer him things. And I, I, I had played the role of parent and guardian, and I was sort of, I was sort of miffed at some of the things that he would allow to happen. And apparently, Jerry's interceding into his career. Uh, Jerry wasn't there in the beginning. It was I was dealing with Ahmed, uh-huh. but I think Jerry had a real passion for what what Dr. John represented. So he sort of came into the scene and sort of rescued him, and I was reluctant to get back involved again. So anyway, I, yeah, I understand. That's why I was reluctant to 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 go back into that situation. Uh, where I didn't know when when Mac was going to let somebody else take him another direction. Mm-hmm. So it was only on Jerry's... Uh, actually, uh, I mean, I, I never expected that. Jerry actually pleaded with me to come back and do this. Uh, I don't know why he really did that, but he. I think he... Uh, I don't know what 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 his deep most motivation for asking me and begging me to come back and do this. He was saying that he really couldn't really deal with Mac in the studio. Mm. He wasn't getting what he really wanted, so mm. he felt that maybe I was the only person that could could effectively uh, you know deal with with Mac and the whole situation. Mm. Well, that's certainly what he told me. He said that he he just, you know, he begged you to come back because he really wanted you to come back and he really not only respected you musically, but felt that your 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 personality would be a good influence to get the album in shape and, and yeah, finished. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 was the case, you know, with me and Mac several times uh when uh, you know, when I would have to come to the rescue after people wanted him but when they started dealing with him, mm. they they couldn't deal with the whole package that went with him, and uh, they would ask me to you know come in and see if I can bring some order to it. Well, now you spoke about Sonny Bono earlier, and how did you first hook up with him? Oh, I hooked up first with Sonny uh, back when I first started going by Specialty Records. You remember when I told mm. you I had. Uh, gone over there and uh, I had got taken on as a sort of a talent scout and, and uh, there would be times when I was at the office and Sonny would come by with songs he was another cat who was a songwriter and he'd come by specialty with some songs I think Larry Williams had done one of his songs on the b-side of a record that's how I met Sonny after the uh, Sam Cooke thing after that happened and Art Rube turn that record down, turn that track down. Then Art wanted to get rid of Bumps Blackwell. Uh, he and Bumps Blackwell fell out, and uh, he tired Sonny 
so it was then it was Sonny and I working for specialty as a and R man, and I was doing the New Orleans thing, and Sonny was out there in Los Angeles. And with the Sonny and Cher thing, one of your admirers is quoted as saying that you, you could write those simple phrases that mean so much. Now, I mean, I Got You, Babe, for instance, has that wonderful, very simple oboe line that is absolutely oh. unforgettable <laughs> in everybody's heads. Um, could you talk a little bit about those kinds of phrases in your arrangements and the way that you think about songs and presenting well, I, I think when I'm doing something like that in, in the present I only think about what will be most comfortable for the artist and what will frame the song in the best of my ability. You know, that's what that little song was. I mean, six, eight waltz, you know. And at first I was thinking about something like a tuba and a trombone or something, but it was just a oom-pa-pa song. Were you actually thinking about a kind of a circus feel? Because that oboe almost gives it a kind of a little, uh, either a classical feel or even possibly a circus feel. Well, you know, in retrospect, you can see all of those things, you know. But at the time, it was just a way of doing the oom-pa-pa thing in a more delicate, childlike, you know, this was a sort of a teenage kind of thing. Do it with, with some instruments that were not ordinarily used in pop music. Now, you did, uh, I believe, 33 television shows with them. Yeah. Now, that must have been fairly uh, uh, heavy-duty. Uh, your <laughs> yeah. right hand must have been very tired after That's all that writing. Of, yeah, that was very involved. That was another one of those situations where I really went into that very reluctantly. Uh, in fact, they had, when they did the first show back in the early 70s, uh, that was another situation where uh, when they were going into that, I had said, I, I don't want to do television. So they had Dennis was begging me then to, to do it then, but I, re, I stood up to it and refused it. But the second time, you know, after, after they had split and Sonny was sort of on his own, I went back with Sonny to really try to help him get started again as a single act. When the offer came again for them to go back on television, Sonny said he wanted me to be the musical director. And then once again, I really didn't want to do that. But I didn't want to refuse him, knowing that he was going into negotiations with the with the network and with Cher. I didn't want him to have to go into that, knowing that I had said I'm not going to be there. Hmm. He, he said, man, you got to do this, man. You, you know, just if you just do three shows, and if you don't like it, you know, give it up. So, so I went into it like that that I I do three shows, because I really thought in my mind, I thought that when there were negotiations, Nick Vanoff, I think, who was going to be the producer, some somebody higher up. Uh, at the network would say, well, who's this Harold Baptiste? He'd never done this before. And they would say no. And they would that would left, leave me out. But they all agreed to let me do it. And after we did the first show, they were very elated with the work. And so was I. You know, I mean, I enjoyed the, uh, the newness of all of that, you know, of that level of uh, uh, occupation. And, and working with the people who were involved in producing that show was 
was at a, a very high level of, uh, I, I loved that. I really enjoyed that most about it. How big of a band did you use for the show? 12, 15 people, something like that. So, so you had, what, a small string section, a small horn section? Uh, no, no, we didn't. I don't, we didn't have a real string section, because I remember, I, I vaguely remember that the union was that was just at the time synthesizers were getting to be, you know, used, and the union had some kind of restrictions saying that you got to hire if you're going to use strings, you got to hire some real string players. But mostly it was band band stuff. I think I had four saxophones and three trumpets and a couple of trombones and uh, rhythm section. And I just conducted and wrote and conducted. No, yeah. I had really good, great players. I'm, I don't play that well. I don't play as good as I can write. <laughs> so I, I always, I was, I really enjoyed that. That was another level of proficiency that I really enjoyed. Is having cats that could really play and give life to whatever I wrote. You know, I had some of the best cats in Los Angeles playing that. But this was a weekly show, right? So you had a lot yeah. of writing to do. Yeah, yeah. I had more writing than I could do. I had, I had two other cats helping me every week. Well, I, I certainly can understand that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it says in some of the information I've got on you that you did some work with Phil, Phil Spector. Oh yeah, I met Phil ooh, way back in the days when I was still in New Orleans. Well, you see, I met a cat that it was his partner. I didn't know that. When I was doing the stuff in New Orleans, uh, a cat named Lester Sill mm-hmm. had come to New Orleans, and uh, I started doing some a couple of things for him, producing some things for him. And then he turned me on to uh, Phil Spector, who was in New York at the time, I think, uh, about to record, and that cat named Ray Sharp. None of these things I'm really sure that's the cat's name, but it sounded like in my mind it was. And so I remember going to New York, and that's when I first met Phil Spector. But he was sort of an odd cat even then. I remember he was sort of an odd cat, man, weird cat. Then the next time I, I encountered Phil was when I went out to Los Angeles, and suddenly was was working with Phil in some capacity. But... Once I got there, he started hiring me to play piano on his records. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, did some of those Ronnie things and uh, Bill Medley and somebody. Righteous, the Righteous Brothers. Brothers. Yeah, Righteous Brothers, yeah. And there, and there was a point where we even did an Ike and Tina Turner thing. But I did a lot of the Phil Spector stuff before Sonny and Cher got to, got to really be together. Were you working with Jack Nietzsche? Well, Jack, there's another cat. How you find out about Jack? <laughs> Jack came in the in the early days when I was still at Specialty Records. But was in the 8500 block of uh, Sunset Boulevard, I think it was. And right next door to Specialty was a cat named Art LeBeau. Mm-hmm. Uh and he had a, I don't know if he had a little record label or something like that, but Jack Nisha, I think he used to work for him. Mm-hmm. But anyway, whatever it was, he he got to meet me through Sonny. And uh, he was trying to learn how to write this. So he used to copy when I was writing. I remember when I was writing my first string things, he'd copy my arrangements for me because mm-hmm. he was sort of learning how to write. 
So, and Jack was a close friend of Sonny's, and they're both Sonny and Sonny's wife and his wife, they were friends. So I got to know him that way. And uh, later on, he, he went into uh, motion picture scoring somewhere along the way. Oh, yeah, he did some things with Sonny, too. Mm. He did some things, with, and he did a lot of stuff with Phil Spector. Mm. I think he did. Yeah, he did loads yeah. of stuff with Phil Spector, and he wrote quite a few songs with Sonny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had done this. It was that that needles and pins. That's it, needles and pins. Yeah, they did that together. So, but I mean, you say you worked on the Ike and Tina Turner thing. Did you did you work on uh, River Deep Mountain High? Did you did you play piano on that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I forget now what it was. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was that because between them and uh, and the Righteous Brothers stuff. By that time, in my mind, and I'm only saying I'm must. Just the way I remember it now, Phil was like to me he was going crazy, because we'd go in the studio, and we might spend three days on one tune, and it just seemed so ri- ridiculous to me. But it it almost seemed as though he had gotten to a point where he was afraid to finish, hmm. and to just keep doing the same thing over and over. Give me another one. Another. So I I you know I would be there, but I wasn't there. <laughs> So it, were you on those sessions where he doubled everything, where he had two pianos, two basses? Uh, three two... pianos, mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes three pianos, man. And I, I, I think I was the seasoning man, you know, I mean, because what I played on piano, first of all, I'm not a piano player, but what I played on stuff was free. I was free to just do what I wanted to do. The other cats had music to play, uh, parts to play, uh, something uh, I remember there was a cat named Don Randy and another one. I think Mike Rabini was playing on those things, too. I forget all the piano players he had, but uh, I just remember that I was I was sort of left alone to add seasoning. You know, I had just gotten back out to Los Angeles then. Uh, that was after my own experiment with uh, starting a record label in New Orleans. That was back in the early 60s, it must be in 63, 64, something like that. So I really, really wasn't that uh, interested in knowing the hierarchy. I just It was recordation, I was getting paid. Mm. Did you ever work with Dave Bartholomew? No, I didn't. I never did. I mean, he was sort of like one of my ideals and, uh, you know, uh, I always wanted to emulate Dave Bartholomew because... When I was really young, he used to rehearse his band right across from where I lived. He was at the Dew Drop. He would rehearse his band at the Dew Drop Inn. And I lived right across the street in the Magnolia Project. And I could hear them from my porch. And uh, I used to like that big, loud trumpet play (laughs) when he would blare out it. And then he was on the radio on Sundays. And I would hear his themes come on. Him and Paul Gaten, they were the cats that I really admired. I want to talk about your starting your own record label in a minute, but uh, you also, uh, in in the information that I have, says you did some work with Tom Waits. <laughs> well, to me, to me, the little I did, the very it was a small amount of thing. I didn't do that much, but to me, it was just sort of like Mac Rabinac thing to me. Let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you you started your own label really quite, I guess, early on, and you've always done your own projects. Was was the motivation behind that to have more art, artistic control? Uh, 
Yeah, that was part of it, you know. Uh, I mean, that wasn't the the motivating part. I mean, actually, the motivating part of that was more social, political, and economic kind of stuff, you know. I I just uh, felt that uh, from a standpoint of a racial standpoint, the percentage of ownership in the music business was too small. And I thought that African-American people... who were not then African American? What were we then? I forgot. We were black, or we were colored, or something. I don't know what we were at that time, but whatever we were, I I saw that the record business was largely stimulated by the music that our people created, but yet in New Orleans particularly, we didn't own any. And there was a lot of local little local record labels, and we didn't own anything. And that's what was the real motivation was to try to try to at least demonstrate that we we produce a certain level of uh, music that seems to be very well received on the marketplace, mm-hmm. and that we should try to learn how to own some of it. And Sounds sort of serious, huh? <laughs> well, that's good to be serious. Uh, would you say that that was an influence on other later labels like Motown? Well. I I don't know that that was because Motown got started just around the same time. I remember going up there when Gwendolyn had just. She, I think she was the she was the first one I met before Barry got involved. They were getting started, you know, as writers and so forth. So I I wouldn't think that they knew about AFO uh, to get started. I mean, they may have started on their own. So. But I think it was an influence around New Orleans, and maybe the motivation, the you know, as I say, other than economics, uh, I don't think Motown got started on the the, the motivation. I think there was maybe been more more about money. Hmm. Uh, it it seems that in terms of the history of pop music, that New Orleans music and musicians had a very large influence on the. Uh, beginnings mm. of what we call, you know, pop music today. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what are the musical elements that you would say uh, you could p- point out and say, well, those things were very influential? Well, I think New Orleans' uh, influence and impact on American music generally is because of the history of uh, of the African diaspora that landed in New Orleans. Uh, the culture in New Orleans uh, seems to have been a lot different from other parts of the South. The, the slavery mentality of Europeans in in the Protestant areas was different from those here, which was predominantly Catholic. Uh, it was French and some Spanish. And so the Africans that landed here were brought here in one way or the other, uh, were allowed more uh, freedom to remain African than they were in other places. In other words, the African uh, culture was not as suppressed here in this culture. And hence, the retention of that culture was stronger, and it influenced the music, mm-hmm. just as it influenced a lot of other things here. So that's the element I think that has sort of persisted in uh, creating more 
excitement or whatever it is that we bring to music. There's two types of sort of black music that were very influential, and the, the one side would be, I guess, the more kind of funk-oriented side. Mm. But mm. the New Orleans thing is a much more kind of uh, a combination of... Uh, it's a whole different thing. You know, there's the whole different kinds of ways the rhythm sections are put together, uh, the kind of a jigsaw puzzle of the, the <laughs> relationship between the bass lines and the and the the way that the piano's played, of course, especially yeah. uh, Professor yeah. Longhair influence and mm. and and all that. It's a very different thing from, I guess, the northern, uh, more mm-hmm. funk and soul oriented stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, all of these all of these things uh, are, are different. Uh, every individual thing is has its own identity and difference just like every individual does and that i think uh that expresses itself in larger units of individuals like families and tribes and cities or whatever as the as the groups get larger they the seeds of of the individuality are always the most predominant seeds. And so uh, when the theorists get a hold of it, the musicologists and so forth, they tend to want to give things names like jazz and gospel and hillbilly and put names on things that come from various individuals and groups of people. But there's no real difference. There's more, in my mind, It's it it becomes apparently different. It's like... Apparently, you and I may be different. One may be black and one may be white, but we're not different. We're really the same. We're really the same. We're just human beings, that's it. But when you put names on things, people begin to notice the differences more than they recognize the similarities. Um, I didn't want to get off into nothing like that, but no, no, that's, that's very, very, very true, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I guess it's just that when we try to talk about things, I guess we we get forced to put names on things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. That's what we we sort of trapped into that in that, that talking thing. Yeah. Sometimes I wish I was a cow. That <laughs> after talk, I didn't have to say nothing. <laughs> well, you certainly never never be short of milk. <laughs> You've seen in your lifetime tremendous changes in technology. Um, yeah. Have, has that affected the way you make music? In other words, in the way that you record or the way that you, I mean, are well, you using computers yourself? It certainly, it, it does affect the way music is made. I don't make that much music anymore. Uh, I, for the last 10 years, I've been involved in uh, in in this un- university of new orleans and i really i really have enjoyed that the freedom from the commercial world and allowing me to get back to uh, closer to what i really enjoy and that's the communication with uh, with people and particularly with younger people and in, in helping to uh you know, if I can steer them to some awareness of what they can do and what's possible for them to do, and so I don't really make that much music. I like to hear my hear the students make music, and and I do whatever I can to encourage them. Do you feel that um, the role of the arranger from the time mm-hmm. that you started out changed as the years went by? I mean, how in other words, how much? How much, how important you were to the track, how much control you had of the track, did that change? Well, 
Uh, of course it does, but you know it, it changes as it, everything changes. The te- technology and all that stuff, all that has an influence on it. The, uh, the fact that most people can just do it all by themselves; they don't need an arranger. Uh, everybody is an arranger. You know, one time I, I remember I was I was helping a cat move out of his apartment, and uh, when they were putting the stuff in the truck. They was losing a lot of space, so I said, well, man, let me stay out here in this truck. Y'all just bring it out. And 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 I could be more efficiently put the stuff in the truck, and the cat said, yeah, that's right, you're an arranger. You could do that. <laughs> so so I began to think, yeah, that's right, that's what an arranger does. We just arrange shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. <It's, laughs> no, that's put- good. In fact, that's one, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm trying to do on this series is explain to people in, in words that they can understand what an arranger does, because uh, as I've said many times, if you go up to 100 people in the street and ask what an arranger is, <laughs> you'd be lucky to get one who knows what you're talking about. And I think that's actually what you've just given me is one of the best explanations of what an arranger does in yeah. non-musical terms that I've ever heard, and, I'm th- and I have to thank you for it. <laughs> what you got to do? You got to really remind me who you are, because I'm going to forget your name. Well, I'm Richard Niles. Oh, Richard Niles. Yeah, okay, all right. 